Morning, Richmond family. It's great to be together this morning. Um, yeah, as Mark's prayed, I feel slightly intimidated about speaking on this passage this morning because there's nothing I can say that is as good as those words. Uh, we could just maybe watch that over and over again on a loop for like the next 20, 30 minutes and that would probably be the most useful thing we could do with our time. Um, but sorry, you're stuck with me. This incredible passage uh, in the kind of, it's not in the middle, but it, I think it is the centre of this letter of Philippians that we're looking at, this passage about who Jesus is. Uh, we could reflect on that all day, but it's also really interesting what Paul does with this passage and how he uses it in his letter to challenge us uh, and to maybe to encourage us. But I want to start with a, a question that might seem left of field, but hopefully we'll come back to it. When you think about what we've been doing this morning as we gather together in worship, um, we sang a couple of amazing songs. That, how great is that new song we've been learning, um, A Thousand Hallelujahs. And I want to ask you, how, what, so what is kind of happening when we, we sing songs together or how does worship work? How does worship work? When you stand up in this place as a community together and when we sing songs about how amazing Jesus is, that he died for us, that he rose, that we are resurrected with him, that he is worthy of all praise and all glory and all honour. What's kind of happening? What's happening for God? What's happening for us as a community? What's happening in you personally? I don't know if it's something you think about too much or it's something that we do regularly and it's part of our practice and maybe it doesn't matter that we don't think about it because it's working, it's doing what worship does whether we think about it or not. But I'd suggest this, I reckon there's at least two different things that are happening in worship. There's probably heaps more. But one of them is, of course, that Jesus is being honoured. Right? Jesus is being given glory and honour. That The things that we're singing about, we're actually doing by singing about them. That makes any sense at all. What we're, what we're saying with our tongues, we are kind of doing as a body, as a community. We're giving Jesus glory and honour. We're saying, you are amazing. You are worthy. We're, if you like, we're giving him applause. I was in Melbourne this week and actually went to a, a little um, photo art exhibition at a little art gallery um, and it was called Impressing God and it was about, uh, it was photos of different worship spaces around the world. So there was photos of cathedrals but there was also photos of temples of different religions uh, and photos of kind of mosques and people bowing to pray and there was also photos of football stadiums and Olympic stadiums <laughs> and places where people go to watch sport which is a really kind of interesting dynamic to add to it but this idea of, of worship that where a huge crowd of people gather and basically give someone applause okay there's been a lot of that going on the last week maybe not so much last night and on Wednesday yes it's been a bit sad uh, with the materials but it's been great I mean it's been great to watch but that idea of actually in the moment of being there together as a community and lifting our voices and clapping our hands we are giving worth we are ascribing honor we are giving glory to someone and, and Jesus is being worshipped and being amazed at and honored in our worship so that's, that's a really key part. That might be the most important part of worship. But there's also something else I think that happens to us when we participate in that. Like it's, it's different, if I go with the Matildas example, to watch the crowd on the TV at the game and to actually be a part of it yourself, right? Yes, I didn't get to be a part of it at all. I don't know if anyone did. But you know what it's like, right, to be in that moment, where you are participating in what's happening, something happens in you. And so when we worship, if I ask that question, how does worship work? When we gather together today and we give Jesus the honour and the worth and the glory that rightly belongs to him, we are also being formed and shaped by that. And there's heaps of 
books I could um, talk about and people who've kind of written about this much better ways than I could explain it. But the idea that worship is formative, that it actually shapes us, that by declaring those truths and giving Jesus those honors, that honor that he deserves, somehow we are changed in response and that we live out of that, that worship has an impact on us and forms and shapes us. It's why it's one of the rhythms or practices of our church that we do it over and over again because it continually forms and shapes us so that we might live in response. I think those two aspects of worship are something of how Paul is using this great passage in his letter, both to give honour and glory to Jesus and for us to just be amazed, but also to form and shape us in response. So if you haven't been here for the last couple of weeks, we've started this series has been mentioned on the letter to the Philippians that Paul wrote. And uh, the last two messages are both available, I get to say this now, on the podcast and on YouTube. Go Richmond, we're on YouTube now. Um, But you can catch up. So two weeks ago, Nate kind of set the scene for us about this letter that Paul is writing from prison from one of the darkest places that a person could find themselves and yet this incredible letter of joy to this church as he seeks to encourage them. Uh, And then last week we looked at chapter 1 and the start of it, uh, particularly how we respond to adversity and the opportunity that there might be in it for us. And so today we come to chapter 2, as we've already said, almost this core part of the scriptures. If you've been around a church uh, for longer than, I don't know, a few months or so, hopefully these are words that sound quite familiar, whether this passage itself is one you've heard many, many times or just the words in it remind you of so many other passages in the New Testament. But essentially the core of this passage is a song, a worship song or a hymn of praise. A lot of New Testament scholars have suggested that this is probably the oldest part of writing we have in the New Testament because it seems like it already existed before Paul wrote his letter, that this was a song that the early church sang about who Jesus is and Paul's then taken that song and put it into the middle of his letter. So this hymn of praise, this song that the early church was singing about Jesus is used by Paul as the centre of what he wants to write to encourage the church at Philippi. So I want to read to you again that song. If I can get my Bible the right way around, that might help. Okay. It's very low. Okay. Let me read again Philippians chapter 2 from verse 6. Though he was God, King Jesus did not demand and cling to his rights as God. He made himself nothing. He took the humble position of a slave and appeared in human form. And in human form, he obediently humbled himself even further by dying a criminal's death on a cross. I just want to stop there for a minute. That's the first half of the hymn. That's like the first verse, if you like, or the verse, and we'll come to the chorus in a minute. This incredible hymn of praise to King Jesus about what he has done. It is a declaration, a proclamation, an invitation to be amazed, to be in awe. This first idea of worship, giving Jesus the honour and worth that belongs to him, being in awe of who he is. And this hymn around this particular attribute of Jesus, his humility. The fact that he does not grasp for his rights, even though he is the person who is most entitled to them. He does not take that which is his and cling to it, but actually willingly lets go of it. He doesn't do what he is entitled to do, even though he has every right. 
But more than that, that Jesus empties himself. Now, there have been like books and whole theological courses taught on this single idea that Jesus empties himself. The idea of kenosis is the theological term. There was actually a part of debate in the early church of exactly what does that mean? What does it mean that King Jesus emptied himself? And it's actually where we get uh, out of sort of those debates, some of this kind of understanding that somehow Jesus is both fully God and yet becomes fully human. And those two things are true at the same time. So what is it that he empties himself of? Does he stop being God was the question the early church debated and just become human and so he's no longer God. Well, no, that, that doesn't seem to be what's going on. But is he, you know, just, just human and, I'm um, sorry, is, yeah, is he just like God and not fully human? Does he like appear like he's human but isn't actually human? Well, no, that doesn't seem to be going, what's going on either. Somehow Jesus is both fully God and fully human And yet in this paradox of holding the two together, he empties himself. He willingly chooses to give up the power and the authority and the rights and the entitlement that come with being God. I'll go back to what John says in the beginning of his gospel. In John chapter 1, John kind of does this really like deep theological reflection on Jesus. And he says the word... And that's what he calls Jesus, the Word. And he links the Word to the one who's always been with God since the beginning of creation and before. And the one who spoke creation into being. You know, the whole story of the Bible starts with God speaking creation into being. So that Word, the Word that was in the beginning, the Word that spoke all creation into being, the Word that has always existed, became flesh. Flesh is that word for frailty. If you again go back to the Genesis story, it's the word Adamah, which comes, uh, Adam, which comes from the Adamah, which is dust from the ground. The word that created all things became dust from the ground. Sit with that for a minute. The word that spoke all life into being entered into that life and became human from the ground, created dust, matter. He entered into that. And, John says, he made his dwelling with us. He lived amongst us. He became one of us. He entered into the brokenness and the decay and the death and the darkness of this world. And I just feel like I don't have words to try and explain this. Right? We can read John's uh, opening chapter, John 1. We can read this hymn in Philippians. We can go back to Genesis 1 and we can somehow try and hold these truths in our minds that Jesus, the Son of God, eternal, uncreated, enters into humanity, emptying himself of his rights and his authority and his power and yet somehow still remaining fully God and yet fully participating in what it means to be human. And then Paul says in this hymn, or this, as they would have sung in the early church, he humbles himself. So he becomes human, but he doesn't become a king, king human. He doesn't become top dog of the humans. He doesn't come to reign and rule over the humans and sit on a throne and say, well, yes, I'm fully human, but I'm the best human. So he comes as a servant. He comes and humbles himself. So first of all, he empties himself to become human in the first place and then he humbles himself and becomes a servant or as the NLT translates it, a slave. Now that idea of humbling oneself in the first century when this hymn was written was never something that you would do to yourself. 
It was always something that other people would do to you. A humble person was someone who was of low status, of low birth, who had a profession that didn't count, that didn't matter, that wasn't invited to sit around the king's table, that wasn't invited to participate in the great philosophical discussions of the day. The person who was outcast, who didn't count. And Jesus chooses to become like that. And no wonder there's a hymn of praise written about this. It just gets more and more mind-blowing and unexpected that Jesus would enter into humanity in the first place and then not come to lord it over the rest of us, but actually come to serve the rest of us. There's a reason why Jesus' disciples freak out when they've realised who he is and they've realised that he is the Messiah, God in the flesh, and then he strips off his clothes and picks up a towel and leans down and washes their feet. And they're like, whoa, hang on a minute. You can't do that. You can't humble yourself, abase yourself, become like a slave and a servant. That's the task for those people who don't matter. And Jesus enters into fully, willingly, that position, humbles himself. And of course, the last thing we read in this part of the hymn even to death and death on a cross. It's like how low can you go, right? He's humbled himself to be like a servant. Then he's actually allowed himself to be killed. He dies. He experiences the ultimate frailty, weakness, darkness of being human, which is that we die, that these bodies of ours give out, that they don't last forever, that we're not eternal like God. Jesus humbles himself and experiences death, but not just any death, death on a cross. And again, we've probably got to put ourselves back into the first century to understand that because cross crucifixion was the most humiliating kind of death. Again, that which was reserved for those who didn't matter. We read later in, um, in Paul's story that Paul, who was a Roman citizen, wasn't crucified because Roman citizens weren't allowed to be crucified. It was a punishment reserved for others, those who were less than, those who didn't count and who didn't matter. And Jesus takes on that most humbling and humiliating of deaths, fully entering into all of our brokenness, weakness and decay, serving us and giving himself for us. So we could just repeat those words over and over and we would never fully comprehend how wonderful, how amazing, how incredible it is that God would do that for us. And then we get to the chorus. If the verse is what Jesus has done, going lower and lower and lower, entering into our space, the chorus is how God responds. Let me read from verse 9. Therefore, because of this, God raised him up to the heights of heaven and gave him a name that is above every other name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is maybe a bit more familiar to the songs we sing. (laughs) 
that because of how Jesus humbled and emptied and sacrificed himself, God honours him and lifts him up and he is exalted. In fact, you know the Hebrew word here is not just the word, uh, so Hebrew, Greek, I'm in the New Testament, wrong language. Sorry, the Greek word here, just rolls off my tongue, uh, for exalted is actually got a prefix to it and the prefix in Greek is the prefix hyper or hyper. Right? A word that we still use today. It's not just that God exalted him, God hyper-exalted him. <laughs> so if he lowered himself as absolutely low as he could go, God raised him up as absolutely high as anyone could ever be raised up. And he is hyper-exalted by God. And he is given by God the name above every other name, the highest name, the power of a name. We've already sung about that this morning, the most wonderful, beautiful, powerful name. The name that resounds across all of creation and the spiritual realms. The name at which every knee will bow because he has all authority. And every tongue will to confess because he is worthy of all praise. And we stand together in this place 2,000 years later and we continue to sing hymns like this and declare who Jesus is and what he has done for us. It's an incredible hymn of worship. It's like mind-blowing theology. As I said, you could spend the rest of your life just studying these particular ideas found in this hymn and never fully grasp how amazing it is, but hopefully be in absolute awe and wonder, praise and worship of our incredible King Jesus. Part of me wants to just stop there (laughs) because that's enough. But what Paul does in his letter to the Philippians is he takes this song and he actually doesn't use it to try and explain theology. Paul doesn't say to the the church at Philippi, okay, so let me unpack this song for you and explain exactly what it means. Let's get to the heart of this whole kenosis idea. Let's explore the humanity and divinity of Christ and let's let our minds be just blown by how incredible and wonderful Jesus is. He, He invites them into that hymn, which they would have been familiar with, which they would have sung. But then he actually uses that song to challenge them in their response. It seems to me that Paul is doing this second aspect of worship where he's saying this song, which is so amazing and you can be caught up in singing for the rest of your life, is actually formative of your life. It's not just about Jesus and how amazing he is. It's about your response. And it's about how you are shaped by recognising that reality. If you get a glimpse, not even fully understand, Paul says. He basically says if you get any like inkling, any inch of understanding of how amazing Jesus is, then it will completely and utterly transform you and reshape you and reform you in his image. This is worship as formative of King Jesus' followers. So as we sing and declare and praise and enact who King Jesus is, we are shaped and formed. And so the hymn actually sits in the middle of the passage of chapter 2 with a bit of an introduction from Paul and a conclusion afterwards, both of which are an encouragement and a challenge to the church, to us, about how we therefore live. Let me read verse 5. I'm kind of going a bit backwards through the passage today, in case you haven't noticed, because I wanted to start with the hymn, because why wouldn't you? (laughs) But if we work our way backwards, in verse 5, Paul says, Your attitude should be the same as that of King Jesus. Your attitude should be the same as that of King Jesus. All those things we've just read about what Jesus did, humbled himself, emptied himself, sacrificed himself, didn't cling to his rights, didn't grasp what he was entitled to. Paul says, if you understand who Jesus is, 
you will be formed like that. You will respond like that. And again, there's a really interesting Greek word there, the word that's translated attitude. Uh, could also be translated mindset, I think, in the NIV. Uh, and N.T. Wright has this great explanation of it where he essentially says, this is the closest the New Testament gets to what we today would call worldview. This is really about the whole way that you understand the world, the whole way that you look at things, the kind of fullness of how you engage with the world and life. That if you get a glimpse of who Jesus is and what he has done, it will actually reshape the entire way you see everything. <laughs> right? It's that deeply formative. It becomes your worldview. That you no longer look through the lens of your culture or your gender or your experience in life. You look through the lens of Jesus who humbled himself, who emptied himself, who laid down his life and whom God raised to the highest place. So what does that look like in practice? How do you actually do that? Well, let's go backwards again and actually go to the beginning of the passage <laughs> because it's how Paul introduces this hymn. In verse 1 of chapter 2, he says, Is there any, I love this, any encouragement from belonging to Christ? Like, Is there anything about being a Christian that encourages you? Just even a little tiny smidge. Any encouragement from being in Christ? Is there any comfort from his love? Being loved by Jesus, does that comfort you at all, even just a smidge? Is there any fellowship together in his spirit? Have you experienced kind of any sense of connection with other people and with God through being a part of his family? Any compassion or empathy? Anything that you have received from this, Paul says, then make me truly happy or make my joy complete by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another and working together with one heart and one purpose. It's like, I love how Paul is writing this chapter. It's like he's preempting the hymn that's about to come and he's like, that's also amazing. You're never going to fully get it. But there's just like a tiny bit of something that resonates with you. And you say, yeah, hey, knowing Jesus, hey, that actually I experienced something of God's love. I experienced something of fellowship and family in his church. I'm encouraged and I'm given purpose in my life, just even a tiny bit. And Paul says that will form and shape you and to make my joy, this is Paul writing to the church complete, you will be together in this. Really the first thing this passage says in practice, to have that worldview, that mindset of the hymn of who Jesus is, will bring about unity. It's probably not, if I'm honest, where I would start. <laughs> if I was trying to explain how knowing Jesus reshapes my worldview, I'd probably start with me. Paul actually starts with us. It says the first thing this does, if you understand anything, if you experience anything of what Jesus has done and who he is, you will be a part of a community and you will be together in it. You will recognise that you are part of a people, a family, the church. It starts with us, not with me. It starts with us. And so Paul's goal for the church is that in Jesus they might experience unity. In Jesus they might be together if God and Jesus are together, as Jesus says in, the, in um, John's Gospel, you know, I and the Father are one, then we can be together, we can be one, we can be part of a community with God, his children, and with one another, brothers and sisters. And so the first part of having a King Jesus worldview, a King Jesus mindset, the first goal of that is our unity as his people. It's probably important that Paul starts there because then he goes to where the rubber really hits the road. How do you do that in practice? 
It's all well and good to say we've experienced something of Jesus' love and grace and mercy in our lives and therefore that makes us a people, a community because we've all experienced it. But now we've actually got to live together. <laughs> now we've actually got to put legs on that and put it into practice. What does it look like to live together as a family? Now, hopefully, most of you have some experience of this, whether it's from your own family, your parents growing up, whether it's from your marriage and your children. How do you live in practice with other people? It doesn't matter how much you love them and how amazing they are. Let's be honest. Sometimes they're on your nerves. Yes? Any, anyone? Sometimes they're annoying. Sometimes they want to do different things to what you want to do. Sometimes they see things differently to how you see them. How do we live together as family? If God's goal is unity, is actually to create for himself a people, a community who all experience what it means to know Jesus and who all live that out together, that unity is the goal. How do we do that in practice? And Paul's answer here is humility. That humility is the way that we live as King Jesus' people together. It's the way that we be church together. Humility. Or as he says in verse 4, don't be selfish. Don't live to make a good impression on others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourself. Don't think only about your own affairs, but be interested in others too and what they are doing. Be like King Jesus. (laughs) Don't grasp for what you think is yours and maybe what is yours and what you are entitled to. Don't seek status and position and power. If you want to be a part of God's family and you want to be like King Jesus, humble yourself as he did. Serve one another, love one another, submit to one another. There's a whole bunch of uh, commands right spread right throughout Paul's letters and the rest of the New Testament about how this works out in practice. But the heart of it here is the call to humility like Jesus trusting that it is God who will lift us up and therefore we are able to lay ourselves down we are somehow able to not see ourselves as above anyone else but to be willing to serve and sacrifice for one another this is a super challenging concept to live out in practice It's something that the church has sought to model throughout history and that is completely countercultural to the world that we find ourselves in today. I think we live in a culture that says almost the opposite of this. Make sure you understand what you're entitled to and grab hold of it. Make sure that you see where you fit, where your status is, and if you can, increase that status. Climb the ladder, get as high as you possibly can even if it means trampling on the other way to get there. Look out for yourself because nobody else is going to do it for you. Make sure you look out for your own interests and get what you need before you worry about anyone else. It's like almost exact opposite of what Paul says to the church here is the message that we hear day after day after day in our world. And Paul brings us back to worship and says what you are declaring as you proclaim King Jesus and who he is so forms and shapes you that your whole worldview and the whole lens through which you see the world is now completely countercultural. Humility, others first, laying myself down, being willing to submit, being willing to not grasp, not seeking to impress, not seeking to be above. 
I heard a preacher once talk about this idea that the church should be the place where like everybody competes to do the worst possible task. It's just all kind of trying to, you know, a race to the bottom. If you're like, if we are like Jesus, what does it mean to serve one another, to humble ourselves before one another and to seek to lift one another up? Of course, the beauty of this is if we're all doing it, right, there's this incredible mutuality and unity that happens. I think we don't do it sometimes because we're afraid we'll be the only one. Right? Well, but, but if I sacrifice myself and lay myself down, everyone else is just going to trample on me to get what they want. Because I'm assuming that you're all still living with the mindset that the world has taught you and not living with the King Jesus mindset. To be the church is somehow to trust one another and to commit together to all be like Jesus and to see how God might be at work to lift that up and to do what he is seeking to do through us. As I said, I think these are massively challenging concepts to live out in practice in our culture and yet it is the call to the church to be like King Jesus. I'm going to throw one more theological word at you today as we finish up. (laughs) The idea of looking at Jesus and allowing that to form and shape us and be the, the mindset or the worldview through which we enter into and live out the world There's this great word that theologians have come up with to try to capture what it is that Jesus is like in this passage. It's not found in this hymn. It's not a word that we sing in our songs. But it's the idea of cruciform or cross-shaped. What is Jesus like? He he lives a cruciform life or a cross-shaped life. That is the lens through which he lives his life and that is the lens through which we are to see the world. And that I find as a, personally, you might not find it helpful and if not, dismiss it, that's fine, never think about it again. But the idea that we are called to live cruciform lives, lives that reflect King Jesus and particularly the attitude, the disposition, the way that Jesus entered into the world, took on the form of a servant, becoming human, taking on the form of a servant and then giving his life on the cross. What does it look like to live that way toward each other in practice? So that's a question that I want to throw to you (laughs) because, like any good preacher, I don't have all the answers. (laughs) We've got to figure this out together. Together we can be amazed by who King Jesus is, but together we wrestle with what it looks like to be formed and shaped and live in response. So here's my question for us to just spend a couple of minutes reflecting on together today. What does King Jesus' humility or King Jesus' type, King Jesus-shaped humility look like in practice in our context? What does it look like in practice, in this community, in your daily life, in your workplace, with your family and your friends, for us as a church to live out King Jesus-shaped humility? And I don't want you to just think about that. I would love you to take a couple of minutes with one or two people around you and see if you can actually come up with an answer that has legs. Do you know what I mean by that? Like that, that has like practical outworking. It might be just like one small interaction of, of, of how you would relate to another person. It might be the way that you choose to spend some of your time this week. I don't know, but something, let's bring it down to kind of really grounded practical level. What does it look like to live this kind of humility in light of who Jesus is in our context? So take a couple minutes and then I'm going to pray and we'll finish with a song.
I heard at least pers- one person say their answer to the question is, I don't know, and that's totally fair. <laughs> it's a bit of a challenging question. Um, but I was, uh, you know, want us to keep thinking about that, that these are not just ideas and concepts, but this is a calling to live. I think the other answer to that question might be, that's just really too hard. Um, and the worst thing, I always think, whenever I preach, the worst thing you could do is go away from a sermon like this and think, oh, I just need to try harder and do better. Because the bottom line is you can't do this, right? It's actually Jesus who does this in and through us. And that's why we're brought back to worship and being formed by worship. That as we get that encouragement from his love, as we receive the fellowship of his spirit, as we get more and more of what it is that we receive from God, then he lives his life through us. So let me pray. King Jesus, we are so in awe of you. And our minds are blown and our hearts are warmed and amazed that you who created all the things would enter into your creation humbly, servantly, sacrificially for us. And we pray that as we continue to worship you today together and day by day in our lives, that it might be our worship of you our adoration and our amazement and our awe and our giving of worth to you that would so form and shape us that we might live in response, that the way that we see the world, the way that we live in the world would be transformed and reformed by our worship of you, by our experience of you, by you living and dwelling within us. And we do pray that as a result, we as a community, as a church here at Richmond, And as each of us goes about our lives each day, might demonstrate to our world Jesus-like humility, King Jesus-like mindset that others might be drawn to see just how different, how transformative and how amazing it is to know you. And we ask this in your name. Amen. Thanks, Steve.